This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Last Wednesday, President Joe Biden marked the first 100 days of his presidency with an address to a joint session of Congress. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and distinct honor to present to you the President of the United States. And what a difference a year makes. Gone was the other guy, as Biden refers to Donald Trump in an effort not to dwell on the Cheeto-dusted MAGA boogeyman. Gone, too, was the divisive rhetoric and eternal fighting that marked the past four years. Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President. No president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. Trump loved to deliver pictures of doom and gloom, a coming apocalypse to be ushered in by savage immigrants and radical liberals. Instead, we got a pep talk about better days to come. America's moving. Moving forward. Dogged throughout the campaign as a sort of second-choice candidate, Biden has emerged as potentially the most transformative Democratic president since Lyndon Bain Johnson. On Wednesday night, he unveiled the vision for America that includes the largest expansion of American government in decades, an effort to use $6 trillion in federal spending to address social and economic challenges at a scale not seen in half a century. He told the Congress and he told the country that we're in the middle of four crises, as he laid it out, and it requires this kind of government action, that he's going to step in in the era that's began with President Reagan's inaugural address saying that government is the problem officially ended last night. Biden is betting that the pandemic and the shock of January 6th dramatically changed the political calculus on what voters want and would accept. At a time when most Americans are focused on getting the vaccine, the role of government in their lives is seen as less of a burden and a bad word. Donald Trump did some considerable body work on this issue as well. Together we passed the American Rescue Plan, one of the most consequential rescue packages in American history. We're already seeing the results. We're already seeing the results. He spent most of the past year ignoring the pandemic, focusing instead on personal attacks and vendettas. As a result, the virus raged and the American people were left wondering, where in the hell is the federal government there to help? Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. In addition, the violence of January 6th alienated a broad swath of more moderate GOP voters who were disgusted with fucking Trump and those lawmakers who sided with his suicide mission to overturn the election. Well, some of them went in and they're they're hugging and kissing the police and the guards. You know, they they had great relationships. They would prove to be more open than previously thought to Biden's progressive agenda as he delivered the goods, tangible government benefits like stimulus checks and vaccines. It showed in the overwhelming popularity of his COVID relief act. People were hurting and needed help. No one was interested in a lecture from fucking Ted Cruz on socialism and the return of big government. This makes Barack Obama look mild and moderate. This was a frightening speech, and it was a frightening speech 
masquerading in, in, in really boring tones. And for a president who promised to return to a more collegial atmosphere of compromise, Biden has been unafraid to go it completely alone. The Times makes the man and not vice versa. Out of necessity, Joe Biden has been reborn as some later-day FDR bent on rescuing this nation from the darkness of the pandemic and the politics of Donald Trump's doom. More jobs in the first 100 days than any president on record. The International Monetary Fund... The International Monetary Fund is now estimating our economy will grow at a rate of more than 6% this year. That will be the fastest pace of economic growth in this country in nearly four decades. America's moving. Moving forward. It also resets what it means to be a modern Democrat. Past presidents, Obama included, operated from the Clintonian playbook that mandated compromise or what he termed triangulation. But in an era where the opposition party is beset with seditious, anti-democratic lunatics, there is no room for compromise as they are not interested. You can't deal with people who voted to overturn an election. for the main event. It is with fresh eyes that we look to Biden to take this nation into the future. But as the first 100 days come and go, an arbitrary marker of presidential success that was first established, ironically, by President Roosevelt in his race to lift this nation out of the Great Depression, difficult days loom on the horizon. But until then, Biden should enjoy his extended honeymoon with the American people. As Rahm Emanuel told the New York Times, Joe Biden is living in a honeymoon with a prenup signed by Donald Trump. In other words, the bar that Trump set was very, very fucking low. And whatever Biden does will be seen as an improvement. That said, having got a taste of what's possible, progressives smell opportunity and won't let go of the influence and power that they've gained. Will Biden's grand vision for infrastructure come to pass? Moreover, how far is Biden willing to go it alone? Prison reform, something that is of paramount importance to me as a convicted felon, still needs major fixing. Gun control, marijuana legalization, expansion of the Affordable Care Act, police reform, the list is endless and the expectations are high. Should he stop short or suddenly begin to compromise there may very well be a reckoning. In this heady atmosphere of possibility and meaningful change, Biden knows that he has a small window of opportunity. The man is 82 years old, and the party holds the slimmest of majorities in Congress. Should he fail to deliver or overplay his hand, he too will find himself on the outside looking in. My next guest on Maya Culpa has played a key role in this current progressive revival. Hassan Piker, who currently holds the title of being the top streamer on Twitch, is delivering left-leaning political news and commentary 
to his 1 million subscribers, most of them millennial or Gen Y political obsessives who come to Piker for what they see as a relatable but honest and factual digestion of the news. Piker, who is known on Twitch by his streamer handle, Hassan Abi, is part of a new generation of journalists who have emerged from the mashup video game culture and social media to embrace Twitch, the streaming video platform, as an outlet of activism. His main goal these days is to defeat and destroy the Fox News narrative about the left that has portrayed Piker and his ilk as practitioners, hysterical wokeness, and cancel culture. Broadcasting upwards of 80 hours a week, Piker hosted AOC recently, but is best as a lone voice in his army of fans. This is the future of political discourse, folks, and we're lucky today to have him on Mea Culpa. So let's listen now to that conversation. Hassan, on Wednesday, Joe Biden revealed a pretty bold agenda for the future that is far, and I mean far from the idea of him as a cautious moderate. Are you surprised at Biden's approval from progressives? And how long do you think that his honeymoon will last? What in your mind does he have to deliver? I think that there are always going to be disagreements between uh, progressives even. But uh, so far, uh, the Biden administration has been pretty... The Biden administration, the Biden administration has been pretty good, but uh, that is a really, really low bar, especially after Donald Trump, which uh, would allow him to skirt along no matter what, uh, by virtue of not being Donald Trump, in the eyes of a lot of liberals and Americans in general. I think that he dropped the ball. The administration dropped the ball big time on the $15 minimum wage battle, uh, right at the finish line too. Uh, when they refused to uh, when they refused to override the uh, Senate parliamentarians' decision not to include the fifteen dollars minimum wage in the budget reconciliation, and I think that that a lot of progressives uh, were very critical of that, myself included. Ultimately, uh, the the agenda is good. I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the joint uh, session address was pretty solid overall. Uh, consistent, strong, progressive message. But uh, as far as uh, just not looking at the weaknesses in historic Democratic administrations, including Joe, uh, Joe Biden's, I would say that as far as domestic policy goes, expanding welfare policies, expanding social net safety nets is always going to be something that is an absolute necessity and something that the progressives will uh, respond positively to. So, um, if you're asking when will the honeymoon end, I think that uh, beyond the people who are completely tapped out of the political process because they just realize that, you know, we're never going to end our endless wars and all of that, uh, and we're never going to get uh, universal health care, beyond, beyond that sort of stuff, beyond the uh, jaded progressives, I, I think that the only way that this administration starts losing favor with younger people especially is if they don't follow through on any of the uh, promises that Joe Biden made at the joint session. So that, and that's very likely. Let's be real. That's, that's really likely. That's probably what's going to happen. You know, mansion and cinema are two immediate people I can think of that will play the role of the spoiler within the democratic party. And uh, I think Joe Biden needs to do more to whip the democratic caucus in general. He needs to use the bully pulpit effectively like Donald Trump did in many uh, in many ways, uh, I think that that is a weakness. But as far as, like I said, as far as uh, progressives losing 
their their interest with Joe Biden or progressives starting to no longer like Joe Biden. I think a lot of progressives are already very cautious about liking Joe Biden, as they have been. And uh, it only time will tell if they actually push for any of these things that or successfully push for it pass any of the legislation that he brought up, then it will continue. You know, but each generation, right, but Hassan, each generation sort of has their own ideology, right? The elder generation are worried about health care. They're worried about Social Security. Then you have the generation, you know, that I am involved with, where we're sort of all over the map. Things that I'm, for example, interested in, in knowing is immigration. I'm also, of course, very interested to understand what Biden's complete rollout for the vaccination is going to be, whether or not that they're going to actually force people in order to take the vaccination to go to school, very much like, you know, we all had to live through. I'm also very involved and interested in prison reform. I think this country is, our record is abysmal as it relates to incarcerating people for shits and giggles, right? Now, you come from a completely different generation. You're younger. You're more uh, of the same generation as my, of, as my children, you know, what are some of the promises that you think Joe Biden made during the campaign that he needs to live up to? I mean, I can't speak for the entirety of the generation, but if you if you look to my expectations, uh, I, I, I think that um, holding him to uh, genuinely push the $15 minimum wage is an absolute must. Uh, you mentioned Social Security and, and you know, elder care, things like that. But uh, the younger generation cares about that sort of stuff as well. I think that they certainly look to the future or at the very least look to contemporary comparable OECD nations and recognize that uh, social safety nets can work. And that is everything from health care all the way to even Social Security. So uh, that's certainly something that uh, our our generation cares about as well. Maybe not as much as like climate change or uh, criminal justice reform, but still something that's on the top of a lot of people's minds, at least in my community, for sure. Uh, as far as uh, what I want Biden to absolutely follow through on, uh, I, I think I think that at least the public option. Uh, this is something that he has talked about. This is something that he has said that he was going to uh, do. I mean. This is the bare minimum. Public option is the Obama, the original Obama plan. Like it's it's a 12 year old program at this point that was that was slated to uh, pass Congress. And, and, you know, we're, we're 12 years behind on that. And it, it's not it doesn't seem like the Biden administration is going to pay any attention to it. I mean, he brought up uh, pharmaceutical uh, price uh, negotiations, which is a huge problem, obviously. Pharmaceutical prices, hospital prices are skyrocketing in this country and have been for a very long time. They're very expensive. Something needs to be done about that, certainly. But like beyond that, I, don't, I didn't hear a lot about health care from Joe Biden. And I think that's a gigantic problem, a gigantic problem that is going to continue being a gigantic problem. Um, so that's that's definitely one area that I am very, very disappointed um, but I also did expect him not to really push for the public option. I thought that it was it was bullshit. Can I curse on this? 
Oh. Of course you can. Okay. I, mean, I, I have an E. There's an E next to mine, which means explicit. I don't know why. I don't think I use that many. Probably because yeah. politics, right? Curse words. So but, that's that's something that yeah. he promised personally that I don't think he is going to deliver on. Just like the $15 minimum wage is something that he promised that I don't think he's going to be able to deliver on. But I would want him to regardless. Um, Proact being another uh, good example. I mean, they're, basically his his... His legislative agenda was comprehensive. His uh, Build Back Better program is basically a watered-down Green New Deal. And I do think that the Green New Deal is a great outline for uh, focusing on climate change from an economic point of view. Because, unfortunately, climate change is is not necessarily tangible. So you don't really see the immediate impact of your carbon footprint uh, and your pollution uh, you you only hear about it as though it's going to hurt someone in the future that's different than you, even though it is us, our generation, that's going to be impacted by it. And we are already being impacted by it in really devastating ways. So I um, I like all of his proposals. Uh, I, I wish they were more aggressive. I am certainly to the left of Joe Biden. Um, but um, I just I want him to genuinely follow through on it. And I don't believe he will be able to on on any of it for that matter. You know, what is what a shame, because um, I'm looking at the first 100 days of this administration and I have to give him pretty high marks for what he has actually accomplished. But what he's accomplished is only in a certain number of areas, right? So the number of vaccinations that have gone into the arms of Americans, absolutely fantastic, far exceeded anybody's expectation. And probably with the number that have now been um, distributed, it's probably 10,000 times what Trump would have accomplished because he never had a plan in place and he had no interest in having a plan in place. However, you know, we then talk about, as you just talked, climate control and we're talking about um, prison reform or immigration. I don't give him high um, marks on any of those. Uh, my hope is that obviously things that were needed immediately is the COVID relief package, which he accomplished. Excellent. When it comes to health care, I think we're far from where we need to be as a country. Again, with immigration, I think we're far from where we need to be. Prison reform, I think we're extremely far from where we need to be. And my hope is that Joe Biden being an adult and having Kamala Harris by his side, that hopefully the two of them will appoint people into positions of power that they can start to effectuate this. I Am I happy about the removal of our troops in Afghanistan? I'm not 100% certain. Right. The only way and everybody's going to make an opinion about this, whether it's a good thing, it's a bad thing. It's a, a war that we never should have been in. I, I don't know the answer, but everybody's going to have an opinion on it. And the only way you're going to find out is if something unfortunately happens in three, four, six months from now after the complete withdrawal. So I'm, I'm really not sure. Um, I give him good marks for many things, but. There's still way more that needs to be accomplished. And I never expected he would do it in the first hundred days. I just hope that it stays on their radar. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, as far as uh, what's going on in Afghanistan, I think pulling the troops out of Afghanistan is a good thing. Ultimately, Uh, I don't know why that same kind of rhetoric uh, that Joe Biden and numerous other politicians uh, talk about Afghanistan extends to Iraq 
I, I, I hope one day that it will uh, to the rest of the Middle East. I'm fully on board with withdrawing our troops and and greatly scaling back on our uh, imperial endeavors. I, I think that it is a massive burden. It's an economic burden. There's a lot of human uh, casualties to it. It's uh, terrible overall. Uh, I don't think it's our business uh, what goes on in Afghanistan. And uh, regardless, like, I, that was probably one of the, like, that was one of the few areas of Donald Trump that I even uh, uh, agreed with or applauded. I don't know how honest he was in his intentions of withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, but uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have an issue with that. Um, there's another area that Joe Biden is, uh, hasn't done a great job with, uh, aside from prison reform, is criminal justice reform. Now, uh, with with uh, prison reform, uh, he, I, it's a huge issue. You're right. He scaled back on uh, private prison usage in the in the uh, federal level, right? He did this by executive authority, and this is the exact same thing that the Obama administration had done on its way out that Trump immediately reversed with another executive order. However, there was a there. First of all, that's severely limited. Our federal prisons do not make up the uh, over our the, the overwhelming uh, uh, amount of prisons that we have in our in our carceral state. But beyond that, they also specifically left a carve out for private detention centers uh, to so that, uh, you know, ICE could continue utilizing private uh, prisons. And that's a that's a huge problem because that the same reason as to why you don't want to use private prisons, uh, which I assume is that because it's immoral. That's what my point of view is on it uh, to, to profit off of, uh, you know. Capturing and caging people is not necessarily uh, something that should be uh, uh, should be uh, further polluted by the profit motive. Um, but that should extend to ICE as well and detention centers as well. And they didn't do that. And I think to me, as someone who closely watches these sorts of things, who's already very cynical, I it makes me feel as though uh, that's a that's a signal that they are not going to significantly roll back uh, any of the uh, immigration policies of the previous administration, which is a trick that Democrats pull all the time. They they won't roll back the the Republican agenda as significantly as they're supposed to. And therefore, the Overton window continues to shift further and further right. I think immigration right now, uh, I guess, depending on your point of view, has been a crisis for a very long time. But um but it's one that we have uh, two options out of. Uh, it's one that we have two solutions for. It's uh, either that we increase the cruelty and we increase the brutality so that someone who is uh, walking all the way from Guatemala to the border in the United States uh, has a worse time within our walls than they do back home or on that journey, right? And that's kind of what the Trump administration was going towards. Not kind of, that's exactly what they were doing. That's why they talked about how uh, child separation was a deterrence uh, measure, right? Um, or you deal with it in a more humanitarian way. And the more humanitarian way of dealing with it is to try to solve the problems overseas uh, that our neighbors are facing. A lot of those problems we personally cause with our foreign policy to begin with, whether it be coup d'etats that we facilitate in these countries when they have democratic elections, or um, the way that we shut them out of trade or the way that we consistently exploit them 
uh, either through the IMF or through our foreign investments. If we were to focus on opening up our borders in a more humanitarian way to uh, immigrants coming in while simultaneously focusing on the issues that they might have and engage in more ethical trade, for example, we would have a better time making sure that immigrants stay home where they are. I myself am Turkish. I came to America when I was 18 years old. I was a very affluent beginning in comparison to a lot of these people. But I understand that like a lot of people would not want to leave their home and their culture and their family behind, but they are forced to. They, they feel like they have no uh, other option. They feel like there's no better option for them. Uh, and, and if you don't address that problem, it's only going to get worse, especially with climate change destroying agriculture. But Hassan, you do have to acknowledge that when you came at the age of 18, you came legally and you went through yeah. the process. The only problem that I see right now as it relates to the immigration is that we don't actually have policy that anybody knows what is right, what is wrong, whether it's still in existence or it's been repealed. And I think that that's what they need to do. They need to start and to revamp the immigration system. My father came to this country when he was 28. There was a process that he had to, you know, that he had to go through and he did it, very much like many Im- immigrants um, that are living in America. The problem is that the policies are not either properly enforced, they're not properly identified. They just need to revamp the entire immigration system. And that way, those people that want to come to America know that they're wanted, but this is what we want in order for you to come here. I think it's a fair trade-off. I just don't understand why nobody is doing it. I don't disagree with you on that. But I do want to move forward. I I don't disagree with you on that at all. Sorry to cut you off. But but when when people talk about uh, having a more humane, more compassionate immigration system, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to have economic benefits. It certainly will. Uh, every single economist agrees that uh, open borders is better for both the host nation and the, the nation of origin, no matter what. There's uh, many economic benefits. And I'm, I'm talking about guys that look to me like I, I believe in astrology for my point of view, my ideology. So like from left to right, it doesn't matter. But um, beyond that, when people talk about uh, less restrictive border policies, they don't necessarily mean like everyone just, you know, run to the border and just rush to the border. They mean eliminate the 30 year wait list that you have in order to come into the country legally exactly. from Mexico or the impossible immigration standards exactly. that we have for countries that are poorer overall, like creating more migrant work visas and and actually legitimizing and legalizing this process that we all turn a blind eye to currently will be good for domestic labor in the uh, in the short term and the long term and will be better for these nations overall um but that uh will remove the two-tier uh labor system the two-tier labor force that we have in this country and uh, therefore it would not be beneficial for business owners who currently get a minor slap on the wrist for hiring undocumented labor and taking advantage of that uh, only to call ice on them or back in your days, I guess, what was it? INS uh, or whatever, uh, when they revolt or ask for back pay or uh, demand that there are better workplace uh, uh, safety conditions. This happens all the time. It happened during COVID. It happened before COVID. It's going to continue happening. And that is a, a, 
part of the system. This is the reason why we have such a ridiculous immigration system is because of our corporations and our big businesses relying on immigrant labor and making sure that they stay uh, as undocumented uh, workers so that there is consistently a labor pool that they can abuse, use and throw away, discard when they're done with them. And also use that against the the documented labor force of Americans uh, to say, look, you're not going to do this job. You don't want to do this job for the prices that we want you to do this job for. So we're going to use these guys instead who are desperate. Agreed. Agreed. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. Friday's episode was a heartbreaking but ultimately cathartic spotlight on how a family prepares their daughter for the death of a parent. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out last week's interview with action sports legend and TV star Rob Durdick. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the February 18, 2021 episode with a cult of programmer who describes helping families get their loved ones out of QAnon. It's fascinating and ultimately heartbreaking. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, Hassan, I recently put forth the argument on this show that Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is an ideology, is winning the war as Trumpian candidates are taking over state government and push through these regressive voter legislation and anti-protest laws that have their genesis in his lies and in his conspiracies that they have now become legislation points to the frightening permanence of a MAGA constituency in state and local governments is scary. Discuss this with me, if you would. I mean, anti-protest legislation has been around for longer than Donald Trump has. Look, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think that there is this uh, honest, earnest Republican that, I mean, look, I don't even like the Democratic Party, so you're... If we're being 100% real here, the anti-protest... We're supposed to be. That's what the show is about. Yeah, okay. Well, the anti-protest legislation has long been a Republican uh, policy position that they usually used to just put forward, and uh, and it would, never, it would never get past the state legislatures. But now it actually is starting to get past the legislatures because they're just focusing on these, like, culture war issues that they try to recreate or try to create and hyper focus on 
Uh, like trans athletes is another one that's like completely preposterous. It makes up like 0.001% of student athletes in general. Zero trans athletes have actually gotten, you know, scholarships to colleges. But it's like if you ask Republicans, it's like the most important thing. It's ridiculous. You're just doing that to rile up your base and make it seem like you're doing something different than the Democrats. Same with these anti-protest bills. It completely goes against the First Amendment. It is the most un-American thing that you can push for. And it's going to be very damaging. A lot of Republicans were doing this before Donald Trump and uh, and pulled uh, pulled these uh, anti-protest uh, bills that where you can drive into protesters with your car and uh, that would make it legal to do things like that uh, after the uh, the terrorist attack on in, in Charlottesville after the Unite the Right rally. Because they thought, oh, wow, like, well, here's a person who would potentially get away freely if this bill had passed. But uh, they're bringing it back in a big way. I, I it's just I don't know at this point. I, I, I don't know what to say. It's not it's not just Trumpism is what I mean, though. I, I mean, Trumpism is just a gimmick. It's just a uh, core Republican uh, positions that appeal to the actual everyday layman, the actual like populist side of uh, right wing politics is just Trumpism. It's just maxed out. Uh, to its uh, to its logical conclusion, uh, it's it's the same as Donald Trump consistently lying about the election results or saying that the election was going to be stolen if there's mail-in ballots. Okay, well uh, that's not necessarily a unique position to the Republican Party, uh, as I'm sure you're aware of. Has been running voter suppression bills all around the country for a very long time and lying about elections and saying that voter fraud is a real problem to justify those bills and to justify that kind of voter suppression for a very long time, some of which was declared unconstitutional. So um, I, I've said this uh, since day one. I don't believe that Donald Trump is unique in the sense that, uh, you know, his his ideas are not new to the Republican Party with minor exceptions, maybe like a more um, a more um, militant approach to China is probably one of those like areas uh, you know, putting tariffs on uh, Chinese goods, things like that is, is definitely different than other Republicans. But ultimately, the the stuff, the, the culture war issues or, you know, talking about like how uh, voter fraud is occurring and Democrats are using illegal votes and all this sort of stuff. He's just he's basically taken well-established Republican party lines that uh, professional Republicans do a better job of communicating in a way that doesn't sound so crazy and 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 he communicates that effectively like the everyday Republican would sitting at the bar with their friends. Except Trumpism to me is more every bad racist, sexist, you know, um, anti something policy on steroids is what I defined Trumpism as. It's just taking everything that's negative and then just compounding it because he didn't just have one ideology. It was just a group of ideologies that Trump just continuously spewed. But a key feature of the derangement of today's Trumpists is, according to New York Magazine's Ed Kilgore, and I quote, their systematic rejection of verifiable reality in favor of ideological systems that interpret everything according to an antagonistic depiction of the left as virtually demonic. 
Now, I see this playing out in ways small and big, but and I'm curious if you could walk my listeners through how this manifests for you as people line up to label what you do as dangerous or radical or simply try and push forward the narrative about the left as woke purveyors of cancel culture. Yeah, I mean, look, nobody likes cancel culture. I don't like cancel. I mean, and and I've been canceled by Republicans in the past, so <laughs> that's uh Cancel culture is something that uh, everyone weaponizes on on both sides and weaponizes to their own ends. Like they will both simultaneously say they hate cancel culture while engaging in it uh, all the time. Right. I mean, the the uh, what was it? The Dixie Chicks, uh, they were canceled during, you know, there was there's a lot of people that can't, got canceled in the post 9-11 world in America um, uh, by Republicans. Republicans try to cancel Starbucks when, you know. Starbucks is not saying Merry Christmas anymore or something. It's all it's pure manufactured outrage. Um, so on that end, I, I don't have a I, I just hyper focus on the cancel culture aspect of what you just said. But I'll get back to the or, original point in a second. But on that end, it's just something that everyone does. And then they claim that they hate it when they do it all the time. Um, but as far as like, uh, again, as far as like Trumpism, uh, being somehow different than the rest of like uh, regular Republican rhetoric, um, I I uh, I keep talking about um, like voter fraud, right? But the reason why I keep talking about voter fraud is because, or um, uh, trying to actively discourage or prevent people from voting, this has been a conservative rhetoric, a conservative rhetorical tool. And a conservative ideology, a conservative goal for a very long time. Uh, and it, I mean, going all the way back to and I'm saying conservative and not Republican here, but going all the way back to um, going all the way back to uh, uh, voting rights for uh, in the Jim Crow South, uh, like refusing to allow black people to vote all the way to, again, refusing black, brown and poor neighborhoods and poor communities uh, or stopping poor uh, communities from voting by making it as difficult as possible has always been uh, a, a Republican agenda item. That's why even uh, more moderate or more reasonable Republicans like Paul Ryan have uh, openly talked about how they thought it was very suspicious, the results in California back in the midterms, uh, back when they were uh, in office and everyone regarded him as a serious Republican, right? And so even serious Republicans engage in this or even moderate Republicans engage in this voter fraud rhetoric, not to the same degree that Donald Trump does, obviously. So that's why I'm, I'm saying that he's using the same tactics, but because he's a brilliant demagogue and that's pretty much the only thing he's good at, um, he, he will market those same talking points in a way that people can comprehend and understand. I think that's where his appeal came from as well. But that's why I don't. I don't think that this like separation of the Republican Party from Trumpism is is uh, is a good one. And tell me, though, how is cancel culture affecting you? Well, I mean, um, I was talking about American foreign policy when uh, watching a Joe Rogan uh, discussion with Dan Crenshaw. And I said something that was very immediately misconstrued about America and 9-11. I what I meant was America's foreign policy is directly responsible for 9-11. I don't know how the fuck we are confused by that. Um, and it is true. Uh, but uh, Republicans were like, oh, he this is a you know Muslim uh, anti-capitalist uh, guy. He must love 9-11. He's like a fan of 9-11. And um, 
and and I got banned from Twitch for it as well for a week, which I even think was well deserved for being on it. But uh, even though it was misconstrued and and misunderstood deliberately and shortened to uh, remove it of context, but. Um, but this is something that they engage in routinely. And and as far as like cancel culture goes, like everyone's worried about saying something wrong that like uh, younger people are going to then be like, all right, this means you're a bad person and you should no longer make money. You should no longer be able to have your sponsors. Like that's something in the back of everyone's minds. It's something that no one likes. It, even whether you're a liberal, whether you're a conservative, whether you're a leftist, doesn't matter. No one wants to be shamed publicly at its simplest level. So interesting. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not something that uh, it's not something that people like. It's just it's not something people uh, are are appreciative of. I think that even the people that engage in uh, a, a mob like mentality and their in their like moral conquest to vanquish someone who has done something wrong, even those people personally, if they if, if someone hyper focused on them, you would probably very easily find. Uh, infractions in their background as well because everyone has there is nobody exactly there is nobody who has the right you know to um point a finger at somebody else because rest assured if they took their computer or they took their cell phones and their documents you'll find something on everybody now it seems to me that fox knows that biden is tough to take on from an issue standpoint as what he is proposing is, by and large, really quite popular. Now, do they lean into this wokeness and cancel culture as a wedge issue and believe it's these issues like abortion that it will get people angry and then to the polls? Discuss this with me. Do you think Fox News thinks that abortion is going to get people angry into the polls? I do. And cancel culture? Yeah, of course. I do. Of course. Look. Both parties in the United States of America have like obvious differences from one another. But ultimately, when it comes to certain key issues, like they are pretty much in unison. American foreign policy, our, our military spending and, and even tax cuts and, and oftentimes deregulation is a is a both sides issue that they both Democrats and the Republicans take on in similar ways. There might be aesthetic differences in their rhetoric or the way they speak about the necessity for certain policy positions, but ultimately it's the same. Greatest example of this would be, uh, for example, George W. Bush's uh, top marginal tax rate uh, tax cuts uh, for the wealthiest Americans that were slated to sunset under the Obama administration. And the Obama administration, uh, with the leadership of Joe Biden personally, actually, uh, making those tax cuts for the wealthy permanent. That is something that you would you shouldn't expect from democrats that's something that democrats are not supposed to be on board with is tax cuts for the wealthy it's crazy right but no of course and and even when trump was pushing his uh, gigantic uh tax cuts uh, for corporations of the wealthy that was a massive gift uh, to these people at a time when they were already bringing in record high profits and certainly did not need it um uh democrats were like democrats weren't criticizing it because it was a it, it was basically this this uh, gigantic gift to the wealthy or or uh, some were criticizing it because of its economic impact down the line or the the austerity measures that they knew that they were going to have to implement or something. But uh, most were just saying, hey, just come to us. We'll, we'll we're down for tax cuts. Like we would be down to negotiate on tax cuts. 
And to me, I, yeah, I, I think I find he's that. just. I personally, I think he's just down to whatever is going to be right for America at the time. You know, the whole concept of interest rates. Well, there are times that you have to cut interest rates, and then there are times that you have to raise interest interest rates. And it's all predicated upon the economy, how the country is doing. I, I get it. I, I get your point exactly. I do want to ask you this. In response but, but to those Tucker, are wedge issues, though. Like what you were talking about, as far as like uh, you know, trans athletes. Or what you're talking about as far as, like, cancel culture. What you're talking about as far as, what was the other one that you mentioned? It was a, it was a cancel culture and what? Abortion? Yes. These are issues that drive motivated voters to the polls. Uh, gun control is another one as well. So these are these are primary drivers. They're, they're issues that Americans damn near have a universal consensus on, or as close as you can get. If, uh, you know, if there was, like, a direct democratic process here... 75% of Americans believe Roe v. Wade should be the law of the land and that, uh, you know, abortions, uh, and I hate to use Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, terms here, but uh, abortion should be uh, uh, free and uh, not common, I guess. Is, I think that was something I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's something that you said. But like a lot of Americans believe that they, they don't think the government should uh, uh, interfere in it. There are, however, very motivated Americans that uh, are the white evangelical Protestants that are super duper against abortion that happen to make up a tiny percentage of the voting uh, of the overall uh, voter block. However, they're a very motivated and very active voter block, and they are incredibly important for the Republican Party. So we constantly have this conversation about uh, abortion as though Americans are conflicted on this matter and Republicans will do everything they can. Uh, from court packing all the way to Supreme Court appointments they can steal to uh, change the dynamic and use the uh, use the judicial arm to 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 change the outcome uh, the that would be different if it were up to uh, a Democratic vote. I agree with you. I, I absolutely agree with you. Because small, I do people, want to ask you small this. groups want it. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here to talk to you about the dreaded tax season. We know it's scary enough, but the IRS is issuing warnings to watch out for ghost tax preparers. These ghost preparers don't sign as the paid tax preparer on your tax return, which could be a red flag that you may become a victim of a scam or a refund fraud. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cybercriminals around the world keep finding new ways to steal identities, including these lowlifes who want to steal your money during tax season. But the all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Norton 360 with LifeLock gives you comprehensive protection for devices, online privacy, and identity. It also security blocks cyber criminals from stealing personal information on your devices. Their VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep the personal information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats to your identity. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off Norton 360 with LifeLock at Norton.com slash Cohen.
In response to Tucker Carlson's reaction to the Derek Chauvin verdict, um, you tweeted, and I quote, Tucker Carlson and other Republicans who are upset about the verdict are actually showing their true expectations of the criminal justice system. It's one where cops are supposed to kill black people and get away with it. Do you believe truly that Tucker Carlson and his MAGA ilk are truly this boldly racist? I mean, it's not racism in the sense that it is like I'm putting on a Klan robe and, and you know, uh, getting excited to, like, lynch a black person. It's racist in the sense that it's deeply ingrained within our identity. And a lot of these people just think that it's uh, it's how things are supposed to be. Uh, when I say, like, a cop is supposed to kill a black person, get away with it. I'm at, I, what I mean isn't that, like, cops are literally supposed to murder black people. I, I am using hyperbolic language there. What I mean is cops are supposed to get away with doing brutal things to black and brown communities because they are the line of defense. They are the line of defense between those who own capital, wealthier individuals, uh, white people in uh, their quiet suburbs, and the scary black people that might come and threaten their uh, way of being and their existence. This kind of idea has been a core value in American development for a very long time, even amongst people who don't recognize they hold on to these sorts of biases. Like they might think, well, I have black friends. What do you mean? I can't call me racist. I, I know a black guy. I know a black person. But deep down inside, if you still hold this kind of hostility that you assume that like, uh, you know, police should be an occupying force in these neighborhoods because they're violent. And they're violent for some intrinsic reason that is inexplicable. Then you know you're you're without realizing it, you're kind of subscribing to a a very racist point of view. And I think that a lot of people in that MAGA fan base, a lot of conservatives, uh, liberals, to engage in this from time to time as well when they call uh, cops uh, unnecessarily on on uh, you know black people or, or brown people, knowing full well that the that Cops, when they arrive on the scene like that, uh, could deal with this person in a very violent way and could end up executing them. Um, they they just they they recognize it. They don't have to like openly state it. You know what I mean? There's different. There's varying degrees of racism, and uh, not all of it is equal. But I do think that yes, they uh, they do hold on to a lot of uh, racist points of view. And he plays right into it. I mean, sometimes watching Fox, watching Tucker Carlson. It blows my mind that he has the guts or stupidity to say the things on television that he does because they're so opposite of what we would be teaching our children. No, not every black person is looking to cause harm. For the same way you can say not every white person is looking to cause harm. Not every Muslim is looking to cause harm. Not every, there are people in every single race, religion, creed, color, ethnicity that create problems. That doesn't mean you group everybody together. That's the racist point that I'm talking to you about. That's the sort of bullshit that Tucker Carlson can't get out of his sick fucking head. That he spews this horse shit and it's the same horse shit that he's parroting that Donald Trump used to say, because I've said it a million times. Donald Trump, to his core, is a racist. 
He's sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic. He is all of these things. And so when if you're Tucker Carlson and you want to keep your job, which clearly must be paying him, you know, pretty good, because Fox, for some unknown reason, pays their, you know, their moderators, their, you know, their, I don't even know what the hell you call Tucker Carlson, but they pay them quite a bit of money, you know, and he needs to keep his audience. So why not keep your audience with the same sort of rhetoric that made Donald Trump into the president? Yeah, I mean, but it's not new rhetoric. That's what I'm trying to say is that, like, if you look at uh, if you look at the famous uh, Lee Atwater quote about uh, how before the uh, civil rights movement, you could say the N word and you would say the N word over and over again. And that was fine. But then after, you know, after the Voting Rights Act and the civil rights movement, uh, you could no longer say the N word. So you started saying forced busing. You, and then it became more and more abstract as time went along, like uh, targeting welfare policies. And uh, and and that's how you got uh, white people on board with voting for your agenda, an agenda that was inherently reactionary, because these are people that hold on to inherently reactionary positions. It, it, it's been a it's been a strategy in politics for a very long time. It's a very effective strategy. The only Agreed. difference is Agreed. the Hassan, only difference I got, is like I gotta stop increasing. You. I got to stop you for one sec. I got to stop you for one sec. I agree. Okay. It's a strategy for politicians. It shouldn't be a strategy for TV personalities. That's the point that I was trying to make. Oh, well, TV personalities, of course, are, are I mean, Fox News is, is very different. Fox News was created to be a, a, a propaganda arm for the Republican Party with that express uh, interest. And you see that. And they have, in many respects, destroyed American uh, political discourse. Um, they have uh, brainwashed so many people, and uh, very successfully so. And of course, that's why Tucker Carlson is doing uh, what he is, uh, what he believes is the the best way to uh, maintain his audience. And uh, I guess the way I'm, the way I see it is, it's not. I mean, Tucker Carlson is greatly at fault for uh, for for the way that. Uh, uh, American policy is is so brutal, right? Because uh, he he doesn't command a gigantic audience, and he has a lot of influence over them, and he pushes them in directions uh, that are really nefarious and really awful and really dark, um, specifically towards uh, fascism, I would even say, and and that's terrifying. But beyond that, I, I think that we never examine the core. Uh, uh, the core of these issues, the the root cause of these issues, like where it actually stems from. Uh, we we don't want to analyze the long history, the long and complicated history that America has always had with race relations, with racism, how race has always been used as a tool to divide the working class from the Reconstruction era uh, uh, and and onward. And that is part of the problem with uh, with why we can why uh, the right consistently ramps up the messaging and uh, to only sit back and say, well, that's just, look, he's just saying racist stuff. Well, that doesn't really matter. It, it doesn't work. I think that's ineffective unless you like full blown cancel someone like Tucker Carlson. Yeah. And Tucker Carlson only, you know, um, pulls back when 
his name gets brought into the topic, like what Matt Gates did, you know, when he started talking yeah. about all this nonsense that's going on. And he's like, oh, well, you remember when, uh, you know, we went out with this young girl in black, and all of a sudden you see Tucker's fucking face, like, light up. And he's like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, look, um, Hassan, I'm only just learning about the political streaming world on Twitch and elsewhere. Is there an organized right-wing squad of MAGA streamers who are out there polluting the airwaves with all of this fake news and bullshit? Because I know you obviously know Twitch and you know it well. What's your thoughts? Uh, I think right-wing are, are very organized in, uh, on other platforms, like Facebook being uh, a primary one, uh, YouTube being another one where there's a lot of uh, right-wing organization. Which, on the other hand, isn't necessarily uh, a very good platform for right-wingers to be on, specifically because they have a terms of service that they are very careful uh, about making sure that they enforce. Uh, most platforms have a terms of service. Republicans and everyone, as a matter of fact, violate it regularly, but they're super lenient. Some platforms like Facebook are not even just lenient. They just don't apply it at all, their terms of service. YouTube is... Uh, I guess less lenient than Facebook in the sense that they still end up sometimes banning people, sometimes demonetizing them, but ultimately they still allow everything to go on there. All the fake news and whatnot. Uh, Twitch on the other hand, doesn't really uh, fuck around with that. They, they, they will ban you very quickly if they catch you saying something that is, uh, you know, if they catch you willingly spreading misinformation, deliberately spreading misinformation about vaccines or, 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 you know, voting or anything like that. So they're, that's part of the reason why um, there has never been like a big stronghold of uh, reactionary right-wing uh, uh, political commentators on Twitch. Right, but you did have the, I believe it was the Judiciary Committee or the Oversight Committee called in Mark Zuckerberg in order to talk about that. How come you think Facebook, above all the others, has such a loose set of requirements and... Um, and policies they want to make money they just that's it and uh i think there i mean there's two different reasons i think one is there's a there's the ideological position that people have where they believe that they're free speech absolutists even though no one is really a free speech absolutist uh and they're certainly not a free speech absolutist when uh advertisers end up uh increasing pressure and say that they're going to pull their uh, dollars away from facebook that was what motivated Mark Zuckerberg to go back on his original point, which was, uh, and he literally did say this, I'm Jewish, but I think Holocaust denial should still be on Facebook. I should not be the person who bans that kind of, like who has a say in this matter. And in theory, that makes sense. You're like, okay, there should be a reasonable marketplace of ideas. There's, there's this liberal notion where we believe that, you know, reasonable sides are going to get together and and have a conversation and the best idea is going to win. But that's not how that works because there's outside forces at play. There's people that dump a ton of funds into uh, media arms uh, specifically. So they will continue uh, pushing this kind of propaganda. Republicans do this. Liberals do this as well. But Republicans very famously and very successfully do it. We still don't know who funds the Federalist, for example. It's a, a funny meme in the media uh, circles, I guess. And... And and these are uh, there, there's like an endless sea of funds, basically, uh, where that where these operations that would otherwise be unsuccessful 
and not make any money continue to stay afloat because they are pushing propaganda and dangerous levels of misinformation. So um, that's the reason why it's never truly fair and, and truly balanced in the theoretical marketplace of ideas that liberals believe in. So there's the ideological position that Mark Zuckerberg might have, right? Which I think is naive. Um, and that is if I'm being very charitable to Mark and assuming that it's naivete. And then there's the profit motive side of things where uh, they want to make as much money as possible. And this kind of content drives clicks. This kind of content is very engaging. It sucks you into this rabbit hole and you find yourself spending more time on the platform. And spending more time on a platform is the key metric that all of these platforms care about. So it doesn't matter if uh, spending more time on the platform is churning out a bunch of new Nazis in America or all around the world or, you know, creating uh, QAnon conspiracists all around the world because ultimately uh, they're spending more time on the platform and that's all these people care about. Uh, even with all of the white supremacist terror, like they still continue to allow this sort of stuff to happen. Right, except let's just look at Twitter as an example. I happened to catch their, um, their quarterlies the other day. Twitter banned Trump because of all of the misinformation and disinformation that he was putting out there. And they actually got sick and tired of his bullshit. So they banned him permanently. And if you look to see their numbers, I believe they're up like 20% for the quarter. So that in and of itself kind of explains me. And again, maybe they have completely different economic metrics on how they show a profit than Facebook. I don't that's know. One person. But I've, I'm sorry? But that's just one person. I mean, they banned some bot accounts as well and and some conservatives as well. Uh, yeah, it might be profitable to uh, uh, silence uh, reactionary rehetoric. It just depends. It, it, it's, it depends on that company's personal goals, I guess. Facebook didn't feel that way until advertisers straight up said, we are no longer going to advertise on our platform if you consistently allow this kind of misinformation to continue. Um. Yeah. But yeah, it, it differs. But uh, again, it it's not like Twitch or it's not like Twitter still maintains a rigorous terms of service that they apply evenly and fairly. There's still plenty of Nazis on that platform. It's not like they completely shut that stuff uh, stuff down, right? Correct. It's Donald Trump. Yeah. Well. I guess it was um, with his 100 million followers and the extent of the disinformation, it was time for him to go. I want to ask you this. One of my persistent fears, and I talk a lot about it on this podcast, I talk a lot about it on television and in um, the press, is that Donald Trump has opened a Pandora's box for the next Donald Trump, the Donald Trump 2.0 who will emerge from the MAGA swamp as a slicker, a smarter, and a more capable version of himself. Is there one politician in that universe who you find more frightening than the rest, who has the potential to captivate the right and ascend the way Trump did? Yeah, but he recently got outed as a uh, sex offender, uh, or rather a sex offender wrote in a letter that he was, uh, you know, that uh, he had uh, potentially had sex with a 17-year-old, allegedly, and he's being investigated. He was being investigated by the Trump administration's FBI. Uh, so Matt Gates is the person I'm talking about. I'm sure you've already uh, realized that. But I, I think that he, like the Josh Hawley's and the Tom Cottons of the world are too uh, manicured. 
Uh, I think Tom Cotton has the personality of uh, Wonder Bread Toast. It's just like it doesn't matter. He can recite the 14 words all he wants, but ultimately he's just he's just too fucking boring. And um, the MAGA crowd responds to someone who's a sassy bitch who loves drama like Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump is a captivating entertainer. I say this as someone who despises Donald Trump, but he's a very entertaining person, right? And um, especially if you are not in any way, shape, or form affected by his policies or affected by his policies in a way that you don't recognize, like people with uh, a, a, a layer of privilege that shelters them from the impact of a trans military ban, for example. And they like that. So Tom Cotton is not that person. Uh, Josh Holly, Josh Holly goes and, and purchases fucking wine at the Whole Foods. Okay, he's a Stanford graduate. Like it's not happening. Someone like he he they don't have the the charisma of Donald Trump, and I mean charisma in the way that uh, the MAGA crowd would respond to. So, so the person I was afraid of genuinely was Matt Gates, but uh, he has too many skeletons in his closet, including um, you know illegal activities that he may or may not have engaged in. Uh, so, so right now I can't think of anyone that is like truly terrifying in that way because Donald Trump's appeal or Donald Trump's power comes from his, his attitude and his attitude leads him to be an ineffective leader when it comes to like fully pushing for, uh, long-term goals, long-term ideological goals. He's good in the short term. He's very good from the bully pulpit at like literally bullying people into submission, changing uh, the rhetoric within the Republican Party. But he's not necessarily a very effective uh, statesman. Right. As we saw that it comes hand in hand with being popular in the MAGA crowd. I feel like uh, the skill set is I don't know if there is a person is what I mean. That's going to be able to simultaneously be as charismatic while also being an effective leader who does like politics behind the scenes. Well, what about somebody who's not per se in politics as a representative congressman, uh, senator uh, or governor? What about somebody from the private sector? Since we were talking about a Mark Zuckerberg, he certainly has more than enough money to run. There's no doubt in my mind about that. There's no, certainly he's a demon. Has there's a- no way. I mean, they think he's well, a I'm demon. Well, I'm not so sure that every. I'm not so sure everybody thinks he's no, a liberals demon. like I Mark Zuckerberg more than Republicans do, though. Like Republicans don't like Mark Zuckerberg. They, they Republicans don't like CEOs of of uh, social media companies because, despite their billionaire status, there are so many people who legitimately think. And we're talking not just like Republicans in your circle. We're not talking New York Republicans who are like Wharton graduates. We're talking like. You know, the jet ski dealership owner who got his jet ski dealership in fucking Arkansas from his dad. Okay. Why is there a jet ski dealership in Arkansas? I don't know. But like that guy, that guy thinks Mark Zuckerberg is a Jewish lizard. And and there's no fucking way that he's voting for Mark Zuckerberg because he thinks he's a Mark Zuckerberg is a socialist. You know what I mean? So I don't I don't think that uh, someone like Mark Zuckerberg also has the charisma uh, to to be able to motivate the masses, even if he says the right things, people like Mark Zuckerberg will always look like Kelly Leffler when they're trying to LARP as uh, you know reactionary Republicans. Remember Leffler, billionaire or billionaire's wife, not remotely interested in 
in like actual legislation, kind of as a pet project, wanted to uh, take this seat and got beaten by a, 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 a black reverend who actually in uh, in his past preached uh, liberation theology. Like there's no way that that would have ever happened if Kelly Loeffler was a halfway competent, genuine uh, force to be reckoned with. And I think a lot there will be a lot more in the outside of the political arena. There will be a lot more Kelly Lefflers. If I were to be afraid of someone, I'd be afraid of uh, someone like The Rock, uh, who will never be like a Donald Trump anyway, but someone who is a celebrity. I, I think that's, uh, or an athlete. I think that's what's uh, scarier than, you know, a Mark Zuckerberg. Interesting. Well, let me ask you this since we're kind of wrapping up close to the end of the hour. Dan Crenshaw versus Madison Crawthorn. Who wins in a political cage match for the future fascists of America? Um, I think, oh, God, that's a hard one. I think Madison Cawthorn is terrible, but I think Dan Crenshaw ultimately is not good enough. I think Dan Crenshaw is too, again, manicured, right? He's like, um, Dan Crenshaw is not, he's too much like Pete Buttigieg, but on the Republican side. Uh, he's just, he appeals to a center, right? The veteran, you know, decorated Navy SEAL, uh, smart guy, like, uh, you know, has reasonable points from time to time, but still plays into the Trump crowd. But the Trump crowd hates him. I don't know if you know this or not. I mean, I'm sure you should know this. You know, Trump supporters hate Dan Crenshaw. They despise him. A lot of them do. I don't know if that's changed, but they despise him. They think he's a sellout. They think he like him pushing for red flag laws was uh, terrible uh, and that he's not a real, uh, you know, that he's not a real hero, I guess. Ultimately, I think Madison Cawthorn is, is again, too young, too ineffective. I think maybe people would perceive his disability as a weakness, too, especially in that base. So if we're thinking about it, honestly, maybe Dan Crenshaw uh, would win in that political battle, even though he's he himself is boring as well. I don't see either of them as like legitimate threats, if we're being real, if, if for the future of the Republican Party. Someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene is a more significant threat, I think, because they're like actually batshit insane. Or someone like Lauren Boebert, who is who who does a good job playing the part and is a little crazy as well is scarier to me or someone like Matt Gates is scarier to me than someone who is a very seasoned political operative like Dan Crenshaw, who is too manufactured to, to actually uh, really hit the heart of Americans. Like he's going to want to do austerity. He's not going to be able to stop himself from saying, well, you know, we need to cut back on our spending. And you can't say that. Like that was Donald Trump's great appeal is that he would say shit like, uh, I'm not going to touch Medicare. I'm going to not touch uh, Social Security. I want to give Americans $2,000. It doesn't matter if he was honest about it. It doesn't matter if he genuinely wanted to do that. But he would say things like that. And, and a lot of people, beyond the, the uh, point of views that they have about like immigrants or whatever, respond positively to the government actually doing good things to them. People like money. People want money. So when the government's like, I'm going to give you fucking money, they're like, yeah, I want that. And I feel like someone like Dan Crenshaw is... Uh, he would he would get in his own way. He would never be able to just like beef up populist rhetoric like that. Hassan, throw Ted Cruz into the mix here. I mean, he has uh, he has a better future than uh, the other two, which really says something about the future of the Republican Party. He is so fucking uncharismatic. 
horrible, like looks bad. He just looks pathetic. Uh, everybody hates him. Lindsey Graham once said, if Ted Cruz was shot on the floor of the Senate, uh, you would never be able to find a single witness. Like when the Senate was in session. <laughs> Lindsey Graham said that. And uh, he was right, even though he, he himself is a coward and uh, sucks. But in the floor, in the halls of Congress, you wouldn't find a single uh, witness, whatever. He's he's not very well liked. I guess people vote for him in, in Texas because he's a Republican. I mean, he almost lost. He almost lost to a, a, a liberal in Texas. So, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like the Republican deck is stacked here from my point of view. It, it really doesn't look like the... Republicans have like a bright future uh, lineup to the same degree that I think that if uh, I look at it from a neoliberal point of view, the Democratic Party has a very bright future uh, of, of, of uh, you know, other characters that they can substitute to the leadership position, young, vibrant, uh, intelligent, and uh, clearly able to communicate their ideas to a uh, broader audience. Uh, people like Pete Buttigieg, uh, Stacey Abrams, like... I don't think personally that's good. Uh, I, I have a different position than they do, but I think that those are um, way more solid choice for the Democratic Party than Ted Cruz for the Republican Party. Well, we're going to leave it up to your Generation Z in order to try to fix the country from all the mistakes made by, uh, you know, made by by Donald Trump, and hopefully by the time that not just Donald Trump. The administration, you know, yeah, that the administration, um, current administration is done, that they will have been successful in overturning the nonsense that he has unfortunately left us in right now. And listen, you know, um, as he says, he's running in 2024. And as I always say, that's just an absolute lie. I do truly believe that he's got enough legal issues that's going to keep him out of it. Hassan, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your insight. I wish you all the best. And, you know, <laughs> try, not, try not to say those things that get you knocked off Twitch for, uh, you know, for another week. How's that? No, of course not. Uh, I also have a podcast coming out. You don't mind if I plug it, right? No, I would love you to. I, I wasn't all aware. Right, Otherwise, perfect. I'd plug it myself. All right, perfect. So I have a podcast coming out called Fear and Malding uh, with my friend. Uh, we're shooting the first episode on May 4th, and uh, that'll be released on May 6th on every platform where you can get your uh, podcast at. So look forward can to that. Can you tell me what the podcast is about? Um, Basically like this. It's just me and my friend shooting the shit, talking about politics, current events, news, culture, from the point of view of uh, someone who's a little bit more close to the center and, and someone who is like hardline leftist like myself. So, you know, that's what we're going to be talking about. Well, I wish you the best and um, I will be tuning into your podcast. One more time. The name? Fear and Malding. Fear and Malding. Got it. Thank you, All Hassan. Right. Thank you no so problem. much for your time. All right. Have a great day. And now for today's Maya Culpa. Watching Rudy get raided on CNN and MSNBC and then listening to Trump's whiny and unconvincing defense of his former lawyer, I was beset with what Yogi Berra called deja vu all over again. I remember when my office at home was raided and those early days when Trump pretended to be outraged. Not that he was concerned one fucking iota about me or my well-being. He was outraged that one of his lawyers would be subject to such treatment. But behind the scenes, he was already probing through people like Rudy Giuliani to see if I was a danger to him. 
In short order, I was quickly excommunicated. Trump decided that he hardly knew me and quickly dispatched me from grace. I was soon left adrift, unsure of who was a friend and who was going to throw me under the bus. Well, guess what? They all did. It was only when I fully accepted my fate and decided that my country and my family were more important than Donald Trump did things begin to turn around. Now, don't get me wrong. They fucked me badly for turning on Trump and made my life a living hell. But knowing that I was out and clear of him was enough that I could look my family in the eyes again. From there, I began the long journey home that has played out over and over the past several years. I suspect Rudy is wondering where he stands in all of this right now with Donald. If he's not slapping himself in the face right now and asking himself why he squandered his credibility, his morality, and sense of justice to serve America's most corrupt president, then the man is made of straw. That said, while Rudy and I couldn't be more different, if I were a betting man, I suspect he's getting ready to serve up Donald Trump like a fucking Thanksgiving turkey to the feds. Whatever evil pact those two had was based on mutually assured destruction. If one goes down, so does the other. Now with Rudy facing years behind bars, you have to wonder if he has the third act inside of him. If he were the one to deliver Trump after all of this drama, he would emerge almost heroic to those whose dying wishes to see Donald locked up behind bars. But Rudy is a deeply flawed and tragic figure who knows he's the laughing stock who squandered his infinite goodwill to be a legal lapdog for Donald Trump. For him, there may be no coming back from that unless he serves up Trump. This will be a drama for the ages, folks, and makes what I have to say to the DA almost anticlimactic by comparison. Rudy knows where the literal bodies are buried. Let's see how badly he wants to save his own skin. And thanks for listening. Hey, movie lovers. Who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts. Ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. Maya Culp was brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. Nothing but the truth.